Chapter 8 Self-Defense This is the chapter of self-defense, which might be the first thing that popped into your head as you read the title, Conversation Tactics. Truth be told, conversation tactics are handy and helpful when you are trying to make a positive impression, but they are doubly important when you need to defend your space or stance. Put another way, it's more important to have a shield to protect yourself than a sword to make an attack. Because protecting yourself, conversationally, figuratively, literally, psychologically, takes higher priority. In any case, this is a chapter where we introduce some tactics and maneuvers to work your way around foes and frenemies alike. These are the techniques that allow you to say what you want without ruffling feathers and glide in and out of situations with grace. Or at least just make sure you aren't being taken advantage of and laughed at behind your back. How to say no. Let's suppose you own a pickup truck. One day you hear that your friend Jack is moving apartments and looking for people to help him. You must know that you've got a bullseye target on your back because of your truck. Jack has moved four times in the past year and he's come to you every single time. He didn't pay and he only bought you a Hawaiian pizza with pineapple that had a questionable odor. You don't mind helping people and you have a good heart. But why do you keep moving Jack's couch and piano with him when you know it's a terrible idea with no redeeming qualities? You know why. You have a fear of telling people no. Learning to say no can be the ultimate defensive skill a person can possess. Most of us aim to please. We've often found it can be easier to say yes than to say no. When we say no, we realize that we bring negativity and possible confrontation or disappointment into an interaction. There are some main reasons that people don't like to say no. We're afraid of being rude. We want to be agreeable. We don't want to alienate ourselves from the individual or the group making the request. We're afraid of conflict. Maybe the person or persons making the request will get angry if we reject their request. This might lead to an ugly or unpleasant confrontation. Many of us try to avoid confrontations as much as possible. We don't want to burn bridges. Some people take no as a sign of personal rejection and they may decide to hold your lack of cooperation against you. We like to be helpful. It feels good. But at what price? Our time is valuable. But consider that the people forcing you to say no don't care about any of that. In fact, they're banking on the fact that you care more than they do. What do you believe will happen when you say no? Will you be burned at the stake? Chances are low. Hanged in effigy? Executed? Probably not. One simple way to say no more easily and often is to change the vocabulary you use. The Journal of Consumer Research published a study in which 120 students were divided into two groups, the I can't group and the I don't group. One group was told that each time they were faced with temptation, they were to tell themselves, I can't do X. For example, when tempted with chocolate, they were to say, I can't eat chocolate. The other group, the I don't group, was instructed to say, I don't do X. Or, in the case of chocolate, I don't eat chocolate. The results of this study showed the major impact that just a slight difference in vocabulary can make on our ability to say no, to resist temptation, and to motivate goal-directed behavior. 
the I don't group was overwhelmingly more successful in its ability to say no. I can't becomes an exercise in self-discipline, but when you tell yourself I don't, you're creating a line in the sand that takes the situation out of your hands. Your choice was pre-made to say no, and thus you can stick to it more easily. By simply changing one word when we talk to ourselves, we can change our behavior. When people hear don't, it's more of a hard boundary, whereas can't typically implies an open-ended answer that encourages people to try to persuade and coax you. In learning to say no, the same I don't principle applies to someone who gets repeated requests for favors or obligations. Instead of reviewing each request separately, you might consider rejecting the entire category. In other words, instead of reviewing each request and making an I can or an I can't decision, you'll find that it's much more empowering to reject all requests that are in a certain category, such as, sorry, I don't do those types of meetings anymore. Refusing an entire category is a boundary that most people will accept. If they sense you make exceptions frequently, they will attempt to persuade you to let them be yet another one. The toughest time in saying no actually occurs right after you do so. It's then when you want to offer help, keep talking, or do anything to reduce the tension that your no has created. This is usually the time when you start wavering. Well, if you really need my help, I guess I could. I'd rather not, but... Resist the temptation and stay silent, because your assertiveness is often lost in that moment. This is the moment where your facade of assertiveness can easily break. But remember, all you need to do is get past this split second of immense tension, and you will be home free. If you still feel the need to add a because at the end of your sentence, keep it short and simple and don't elaborate on the details. The more details you give, the more fodder you give people to pick at. For instance, if you say no to helping a friend move because you need to walk your cat in the morning, you create an avenue for people to dispute that you need to walk a cat at all. Don't him and haw your way through an explanation on why you said no. Don't feel compelled to share an alternative or something that can make up for your no. It's okay to just say no. No further explanation is needed. Overall, remember that no can be a complete sentence. If you can't just say no, or if you can't say no immediately, another option is to defer the decision or punt it into the future. Tell them you'll think about it, and then ask them to follow up. In other words, put the burden back on them by requesting something to help you consider the request. Let's take Jonathan, who is very smart and mentors companies. He has asked for coffee all the time from people who would like to pick his brain and otherwise soak up information from him like a sponge. He has to say no quite frequently, but he's devised a way around it. He creates a hoop for them to jump through before agreeing to anything further. When someone asks him for coffee, he will ask them to send, via email, an agenda or plan of what they want to discuss and why. He doesn't hear from 99% of the people again. When someone asks you for something, create a condition for them to fulfill in order for you to consider their request. 
It will buy you time and space, and most people will never get back to you because they would have to put in the work. Another option, if you're having a tough time saying no, will be to offer a bait-and-switch yes. I can't do that, but I can do this. I can't spend all day helping you move to another apartment, but I can give you one hour. I can't go out with you this weekend, but I promise that I'll make some time to do that within the next month. I can't serve on the board, but I'll be willing to consult on an ad hoc basis whenever I have time. What you're doing here is saying no to the request and offering a smaller consolation prize that may or may not be refused. It may be a legitimate alternative as something you are willing to do, but it doesn't have to be. Your no is disguised because you appear to be still open and willing, at least on the surface. If you offer something relatively small, people will likely refuse and tell you not to bother with it. Even better is if you don't provide specific detail and leave it as open-ended as possible. In most cases, the bait-and-switch will result in freedom from an asker obligation. This tactic alleviates most of the tension because you are saying yes to something, just not what is specifically being asked. A final way to tell people no is to pass the buck. Here you aren't saying no as much as yes, but... Allow me to explain. Passing the buck means passing the responsibility onto someone else who is not you. It's when you suggest that someone else would be a much better, more qualified fit than you, and thus you should bow out. You wouldn't do the requester justice, but you can still help them solve their problem by finding someone who will. The requester won't necessarily hear a no, which is the most important part. For instance, if you are asking someone to drive you to the airport, you might say, no, I'm a terrible driver, and driving on the highways make me feel anxious. But Ted is a great driver and might be free that day. You've successfully passed the buck to Ted by making yourself pale in comparison to how Ted might solve the issue. People ask you for things because they want to solve a problem they have. If you make yourself seem like a terrible solution, but at the same time can point them in the direction of a real solution, You've avoided a duty. Saying no is a valuable skill. In learning to say no, you'll be able to take control of your life and your time. In learning to say no, you'll empower yourself to avoid the things you don't want to do. In learning to say no properly, you'll be able to avoid tension, confrontation, and ruffled feathers. A life devoid of no is one that is not your own. It is one that is lived for other people. If you've been passive for a long time, people are going to be surprised when you say no. And if you're dealing with someone who has an alpha personality, they will almost surely try to get you to change your decision. Heck, your lack of assertiveness might be why they hang around you in the first place. And it's tough to change that relationship dynamic once it's been set. Expect pushback and shock when you change the dynamic. How to Deflect and Roll with the Punches As a former fat kid, I used to have a fairly extensive library of witty comebacks for those charming people who liked to point out that I was, indeed, still as fat as I was the day before, or that they couldn't ride in a car with me for fear of it tipping over, or that I was so big my polo brand sports shirt had a real horse on it.
this one was pretty clever, I'll admit. Kids really become innovators when they want to insult someone. Mind you, I wasn't really that large, just twenty pounds overweight. Luckily for me, it didn't carry over too much into adulthood. It's probably best characterized as extreme baby fat fueled by too much candy. Unlike many of my peers in fatness, the teasing didn't bother me too much. That's because the bullies mostly stopped picking on me because I developed an arsenal of comebacks whenever I was insulted. These comebacks never failed to either shut people up or bring them to my side through laughter. It's no wonder that a common origin story for comedians is awkward childhoods where they were bullied, forcing them to defend themselves with their sense of humor. For instance, You're so fat that horse on your shirt is life-sized. Comeback. You're wrong. It's way bigger. Were you also aware that my polo sports shirt can be used as a parachute? Better not ride with Patrick. He's going to tip the car over. Comeback. You better put six extra wheels on your car for me. Becoming a witty comeback machine is easier than you think, and it's one of the best conversation tactics you can learn. It doesn't only rear its head when dealing with insults. It is widely applicable once you learn the framework. If it's a bad situation, a witty comeback can diffuse the tension and bring emotional levels back to normal. If it's a good situation, then a witty comeback can make it even jollier. Whatever the situation, mastering witty comebacks will earn you the respect of other people for your clever wit. It just takes one line, and the shorter and punchier, the better and more effective. A witty comeback does many things simultaneously. It makes people laugh and disarms them while allowing you to appear smart, insightful, and mentally quick. What did the examples above do? They didn't fight the insult. Rather, they went along with it and even amplified it. They played along and poked fun at themselves as if they were the bully's minion. By taking the insult head-on and rolling with it, they disarmed the bully who actually wanted a negative reaction instead of assistance. All expectations were defied, and it was even a little bit funny. That sneaky and subtle way of defending yourself is the definition of a witty comeback. You take a statement and use it as an opportunity to show wit and grace in disarming someone, as opposed to head-to-head conflict. The aforementioned examples could easily have been replaced with, I'm not even that fat, leave me alone. Or, well, what about your haircut? You can imagine how these wouldn't disarm anyone, and indeed would create tension and encourage bullying. In fact, you might make someone want to sock you in the face. Witty comebacks aren't just for disarming people and easing tension, however. The nature of interaction with friends is that we make fun of each other harder than any bully ever will. Exercising these muscles will make your comebacks better and quicker, instead of having to text them to people 20 minutes after the insult was slung. We'll get to how to construct a couple of bulletproof witty comebacks, but first, a few words of caution when dealing with this type of fire. First, generic is bad. You know generic when you hear it, and don't be that person who uses jokes that their grandparent might use. For instance, I know you are, but what am I? Or, so is your mom. A witty comeback is judged by how funny or original it is. Using something that is generic or unclever is decidedly neither funny nor creative. Don't just use a generic or template-driven witty comeback that you've seen in a movie or something that better works in a totally unrelated context. 
and don't use one of the comebacks you thought were hilarious when you were ten. They don't work anymore. Second, don't act like you can't take a joke. Of course, witty comebacks need an initial statement to come back to. The vast majority of the time, people are indeed joking when they say something negative about you in your presence. For some people, it's their main way of interacting with friends. It's almost a compliment because they assume you have a sufficient sense of humor and the emotional resiliency to deal with it. Go figure. Any way you slice it, it's a mode of communication you should have in your bag. The people who aren't involved in jokes and good-natured ribbing don't have many friends. If you let it show that you are angry or hurt, it spoils the playful tone you could otherwise enhance with your witty comeback. People think they can joke with you, and you might just prove them 100% incorrect. For example, if someone made a joke about my fatness and I got visibly angry, they would likely stop but walk on eggshells around me for days. When someone is uncomfortable with something, they make others uncomfortable as well. If that happens enough times, they'll eventually stop engaging me. Handle the initial negative statement with a wry smirk and with the knowledge that you are about to crush them. Roll with it and dish something back their way. Third, use the right tone. The best witty comebacks are delivered with 50% indifference. You should never be too excited to thwart someone because that too will show that you are affected by their initial insult. Indifference is the correct tone because comebacks are about showing that you are cool as a cucumber and whipping out your hidden weapon. If it helps, pretend that you are James Bond delivering a witty retort after a failed murder attempt by a villain. A witty comeback is the verbal equivalent of judo or aikido, using an opponent's words against them. If you take that analogy, you need a certain amount of cool to effectively counteract. Witty comebacks take the power away from the insult hurled. There are three main types of witty comeback. None are better than the other, but some might come easier to you more naturally and comfortably. Type number one, agree and amplify. The idea here is to agree with whatever the insult was and then add to it in an absurd way. You amplify the initial sentiment to a degree that is ridiculous. This was my go-to technique to deflect jokes about my weight. If their sentiment is X, then your sentiment should try to be 10X. You are joining in the party against yourself, but also showing security because you are making yourself a bigger butt of the joke. If you forgot from earlier in this chapter, you're so fat that horse on your shirt is life-sized. Amplification? Were you also aware that my polo sport shirt can be used as a parachute? Bob. Your cooking was pretty terrible last time. Amplification. You're lucky you didn't stay until the end of the night. We all got our stomachs pumped. Dinner at my place tonight? Type number two. Reverse and amplify. This is a simple deflection. This is when you get back at them in a subtle way. When someone says you are bad at X, you basically turn it around by saying that they are even worse at X. It's the exact same as the previous type of witty comeback, except instead of directing the amplification at yourself, you direct it to the other person. Bob. Your cooking was pretty terrible last time. You. Yeah, but at least I didn't need to get my stomach pumped the way I did after you cooked last time. Johnny. Those shoes are so ugly. You. 
Yeah, but at least the color of mine don't cause blindness like yours. Type number three, use an outlandish comparison. This brings the conversation into a different sphere and makes both people laugh at the weird outlandish imagery. Go oddball, extreme, and over the top. To use the same framework, you're amplifying to yourself or the other person with an analogy here. This doesn't quite throw it back at them, it just deflects and changes the topic out of absurdity and even confusion. Bob, your cooking was pretty terrible last time. You, True, I should have used the eggs as hockey pucks, right? Johnny, those shoes are so ugly. You, they make you look like Cindy Crawford's beauty mark. Witty comebacks are the blood of witty banter, which is being able to take an element of what was said and attack it from a different angle without missing a beat. You should be able to see how this can play out. They are instant retorts that aren't hostile or combative while addressing something gracefully. What more can you ask for? Word of caution, fight the temptation to rattle them off one after the other. Again, you have to remember that your goal is to get people to like you. You're not trying to prove a point or protect your pride. Too much makes it feel like you are one-dimensional and can't hold a substantive conversation. Firing off one comeback after another can kill whatever level of comfort you've managed to create because you will appear insecure defensive, and full of bluster. Roll with the punches a bit more, and you'll see one of two things. Joy in people's eyes as they realize they can engage you in that way, or terror in people's eyes as they realize they won't be able to keep up with you. According to a study on the role of humor and sexual selection conducted by anthropologist Gil Greengross, self-importance and pomposity were found to be the traits most despised in potential sexual mates. In fact, he found that self-deprecating humor can be an especially reliable indicator not only of general intelligence and verbal creativity, but also of moral virtues such as humility. Keep that in mind. Always admit wrong. When we defend ourselves, we usually go in with the mindset that we have to win. After all, otherwise we lose whatever we are defending. And for us to do so, we plan to lay down only accurate facts, put forward the correct line of reasoning, and say all the right things. Our defense has to be ironclad from errors and mistakes, and we must never have to say, I don't know, or I'm wrong. But contrary to this common assumption of ours is a suggestion for an altogether counterintuitive approach for winning arguments. Plan to admit you're wrong at least once during the argument. Now why on earth would you want to give your opponent ammunition by way of clearly showcasing an error in your thinking or a flaw in your argument? Simple. It builds people's confidence in the rest of the things you do state to be right. It makes your words count and builds your credibility. Plus, by admitting you're wrong, you're showing that you're not a childish, egotistic gabber, but a sensible, mature conversationalist. Think of people you know who have occasionally admitted they were wrong or didn't know all the details about something. When they did state things they knew to be true, don't you trust their words all the more? It's precisely because you know they're the kind of people who honestly admit their mistakes that you now have more confidence in the things they declare as true. Moreover, you'll tend to have a higher respect for them after seeing how sensibly they handled what could have easily been an awkward situation. When you do this to others, 
You disarm them and make their offense less vicious and malicious. When people realize they are speaking with a human and not an immovable brick wall, they will revert to acting human themselves. This benefits your defensive efforts. Say you're in the meeting room trying to convince the group that the best venue for the company's product launch is outdoors, and not indoors as some of your colleagues have suggested. Plan to bring up a point you know the other side will refute for being wrong. For example, the clubhouse is big enough for a hundred people, so that should be enough to accommodate our guests. Once they correct you, actually we're expecting at least a hundred and fifty guests. Say, sorry, I was wrong. If that's the case, maybe we can use the garden venue instead. It has a more open feel, better suited for a larger guest list. So as you see, while it may pain you to have to say I'm wrong for fear that it will ruin your credibility, this move is actually something that'll help increase people's trust in you, and maybe even better drive your point home. Saying I'm wrong or I don't know shows people you have the insight enough to recognize when you have to surrender the battles and the wisdom enough to know that some battles need to be lost in order to win the war. Dealing with passive aggressiveness, you and a colleague at the office have opposing views on how to go about a project. While you suggest starting off with a fundraiser to finance the project, he wants to dive right into the project headfirst, taking the funds from the company savings. After much deliberation with the rest of your team, your idea wins and you're assigned as the project leader. Your colleague says, "Sure, he'll help carry out the plans you've proposed." He's assigned key tasks to do for the fundraiser, and he seems enthusiastic about following through. But he never does. He misses connecting with the people he should have contacted weeks ago. Meetings with sponsors he was supposed to hold never push through. The flyers for the fundraiser remain undone. None of these misfires happens through his fault, of course. There's always some other person. A technical problem, a miscommunication, or a storm somewhere that's to blame for the tasks remaining undone. Honest to God, he's doing his best. He's sorry your plans don't seem to be working out. Tough luck. Tough luck indeed. Not because you're working with someone who may have broken a mirror and is now suffering terrible luck, but because you're likely working with someone who's passive aggressive. Referred to by clinical psychologist Albert Bernstein as emotional vampires, passive aggressives are people who suck you dry and then act like they're the victims. Unable to directly assert their opinions or express their honest feelings, they instead retort to underhanded tactics to get what they want or get their message across. They won't tell you they disagree with your ideas or plans. They'll opt to sabotage you instead by forgetting to do things. Or misunderstanding your instructions, they won't tell you they feel disappointed or angry. Instead, they'll cancel an important meeting because they're sick, or accidentally feed a vital document to the paper shredder. In their minds, none of the things they've done or failed to do were intentional. They believe they're innocent people doing what they can, and it's life or fate or maybe even you that's causing them to fail. If you call them out for their shortcomings or hint that their behaviors seem to constitute sabotage, they're hurt, and accuse you of bullying or being an inconsiderate, selfish prick. So how do you deal with passive aggressives in a way that won't have you end up getting a written reprimand from HR or spending time in jail? Eric Barker, citing insight from Bernstein, lists five ways. First, 
don't hand over what they want on a silver platter. It may seem easier to simply give in to what they want to happen. Read, you take all the blame and do all the work while they're left off the hook. Then continue having to clean up after their mess. But you're not doing yourself any favor by allowing it. You're only encouraging them to continue such behavior because you let them get away with it the last time. Second, don't ever call them out or get angry at them. Remember, in their minds, none of the bad things that have happened is their fault. They have a distorted view of the world and their way of dealing with it. So if you call them out and remind them of their accountability, they won't see your logic no matter how nicely you put it. If you get angry at them, no matter how justified you think that anger is, they will only see it as an attack. Third, understand and speak their language. When talking with them, remember their frame of reference, themselves as well-meaning, innocent victims. They feel they've been treated unfairly by the world, and the logical reaction they're supposed to get from others for having to suffer that is kindness and consideration. They think of themselves as deserving of sympathy and understanding, so make sure you communicate that. Tell your colleague you understand how difficult it is to set up that meeting when those sponsors just aren't available all the time. Acknowledge his efforts, then provide him concrete steps on how to go about the task. Praise even failed efforts. Point out that those are signs he's trying and you appreciate him doing so. Fourth, be clear about what you want them to do and reward them for doing it. Relying only on unspoken expectations is a surefire way to grant passive-aggressives the key to driving you crazy. If you want them to deliver on something, be clear about how you want it done and by when. When they do follow through on the tasks, heap on approval and praise. Make them feel that they have a lot more to gain, especially status and widespread acclaim, from helping you than sabotaging you. Despite seeming like they're always upset with the world, Passive aggressives actually crave acceptance and approval most of all. If you make them feel that you think highly of them and value their contributions, they might just start seeing you as an ally rather than a foe. Finally, if nothing else works, your last resort is to increase the cost of failing to deliver. This doesn't mean you break out the lashing whip and impose unreasonable punishments for offenses. This just means making messing up more inconvenient for passive aggressives like having them do over-substandard work, requiring incident reports, or increasing the value of things they're trying to avoid. For example, if your colleague serially misses only those meetings related to your fundraiser, but mysteriously gets to attend the rest, inform him that decisions directly affecting him are being made during your meetings. His absence means he's failing to take a vote, thus having him take on more unpleasant tasks than he needs to. Dealing with passive-aggressive people is a skill that you may wish you don't have to learn, but you're likely going to have to. One of the most difficult parts of it may be swallowing your pride to express sympathy and understanding instead of exasperation or anger toward them. But it's the only way to move forward when you're dealing with this type of person. Otherwise, you'll only be fanning the flames or, worse, matching their game and becoming passive-aggressive yourself. To prevent this from happening, You'll need to be aware of how you're responding to them and continually check that you're doing so appropriately. Takeaways Dealing with people is not always easy because some of those people don't have the best intentions towards you. 
In that case, it's important to understand how to defend yourself in conversation and keep your cool. One of the first ways to defend yourself is to defend your space and time. That's through learning how to gracefully say no to people, places, and things. You can do this through your phrasing, creating categories, passing the buck, and creating hoops for people to jump through. These are all ways of avoiding a direct no that might offend someone. Deflecting insults and ridicule is also important to master. These are otherwise known as witty comebacks and make you part of the joke instead of the butt. The easiest ways to deflect insults are to use amplification or to redirect to something outlandish, both of which take the attention off you. Plan to admit you are wrong at least once during each argument or each occasion you are defending yourself. Your defense is more credible if you admit wrongdoing or fault, and it makes people lower their guards once they realize they're not going up against a brick wall. Passive-aggressive people are the worst. So here's a method for dealing with them. Don't give them what they want. Don't get angry at them. Speak their language of feeling wronged. Give them clear incentives to act and increase the cost for failure to comply.